the sermons podcast for Ottawa Baptist Church. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged by this week's message. One of the things that I've learned over the course of my Christian walk is the importance of always being teachable. Now, there were things when I look back that I believed in the very beginning of my Christian journey that I don't necessarily believe any longer. Now, these aren't on the major issues regarding Christ, salvation, Him being the Son of God, but these are more secondary issues. And when I look back, I see that in the Christian journey, it is required of us as Christ followers to live in a place where we can be taught and led by His Spirit and by His Word. When we look at Jesus' earthly ministry, we can see that there were people who were unwilling to accept who He was and what He was teaching. They had an issue with being teachable. In the Gospels, we often hear about a group of people referred to as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a Jewish sect that exercised strict piety concerning the Mosaic Law. Now, when we say Pharisees, as a modern reader, sometimes we have this generalized idea that there was this group of people who all believed the same things and that there wasn't any variance in what they believed and taught. And that's kind of a false assumption. We know that in the Baptist denomination, there are many different beliefs that Baptists have. And so we don't want to make a sweeping generalization when we talk about Baptists, and we don't want to make sweeping generalizations when we talk about Pharisees either. But there are some main points that really tied this group together, the Pharisee group. And one of those was the obeying of the Torah in daily life. They believed that the Torah was timeless, but yet it required some modification in the application process because times were changing. And so to that end, there were Pharisees who developed a complex system of oral traditions or the traditions of men that took into account the Torah and how it should be applied in every circumstance that occurred in life. Now, many of the conflicts that arose in Jesus' ministry were conflicts between how the Pharisees saw the Torah and the traditions of men. They saw the oral tradition as being as binding as Scripture, whereas Jesus didn't. The Pharisees also practiced other forms of piety, like fasting and prayer, and they were really proud of themselves at keeping all of the law, even to the most minute detail. And Jesus has some pushback, oftentimes, within the Gospels, that outwardly the Pharisees are great at keeping rules, but their hearts were still darkened and full of sin. However, it's important to remember that Jesus maintained positive contact with the Pharisees, meaning he would go into their homes and he would encourage them to search for God. And today we're going to look at Luke 7, where Jesus takes up the offer of Simon, a Pharisee, to eat in his home. And this is what we read, Luke 7, beginning verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears 
fell upon his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head. But she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The story here is setting up a contrast between two individuals, a sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee. Now, we're not told what led to Simon inviting Jesus to share a meal within his home. Perhaps Simon was curious. Who was this person who performed miracles and spoke with authority? Was it another setup? In the Gospels, we find that the Pharisees are constantly challenging Jesus trying to get him to make a mistake so that they could discredit who he was. We don't know why the invitation was extended, but what we do see is that there was a neglect to honor Jesus. When he arrived, there was no foot washing available. There was no kiss of greeting. There was no oil to pour upon him as an anointed guest. Perhaps Simon was thinking that Jesus is the one that should be considered grateful that he is now in my presence, sharing at my table. We're really left to speculate as to what led to the invitation. But here's a few things that I want to take away today from this story. And this is the first thing. In this story, we see that God's grace is extravagant. At some point, the woman in the story has experienced God's forgiving power, His grace. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But what I want to do is focus on the grace that Jesus extends to Simon. Keep in mind who Jesus is. He is the Creator. He is the Son of God. He is the one performing miracles. He is God in the flesh. And there is no one more deserving of honor and respect and adoration than Jesus Christ. But Simon doesn't even treat Jesus with the standard guest protocol. And Jesus, 
doesn't mention the disrespect that has been shown to him. Jesus doesn't stand at the doorway of Simon's home and say, Simon, I I think that you are forgetting something. Who is there to wash my feet? Who is here to, to properly greet me? Do you not know who I am? You are about to share a meal with the Son of the living God. Jesus doesn't even address at this point the level of disrespect. Instead, Jesus is going to appeal in this story to the heart of Simon. It's important to remember that Jesus extends grace to the tax collector, to the heathen, to those who are labeled unclean. But sometimes we forget that Jesus actually extends grace as well to those who would be considered self-righteous. So we move into the portion of the story. And here is the picture that we see, that at Jesus' feet there is this woman who is displaying this act of worship. She is weeping. She's crying. Tears are being poured out upon the feet of Jesus. She is washing his feet with his hair and anoint with her hair and anointing his feet with this expensive perfume. And that is the picture that we are getting. And yet what happens? Simon in his mind begins thinking, who is this Jesus? If if he was a prophet, he would not allow this woman to even come near him. He can't even discern that she is a sinner. But here again, Jesus is being gracious. He knows Simon's thoughts. And he doesn't say, Simon, I know what you're thinking. You know what I should do? I should put on display all of your faults and all of your sins in a public format and embarrass you right now. He doesn't do that. He doesn't look at Simon and say, you think that you're better than her? Why don't we recap the list of sins that you have committed, even in the last few days or few months? Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he exhibits this gracious attitude. He asks Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. Repeatedly, Jesus is being gracious. If you're a Christian, then undoubtedly you have been a recipient of God's grace. You've experienced it. In fact, it wasn't this one-off event. If you're a Christian, then you continue to experience God's grace on a daily basis. For me personally, there are times where I am astounded that God has put up with me as long as he has. I find myself in in prayer times often revisiting Psalm 8-4, thinking, who am I as a man that you are mindful of me, O God? You see, after becoming a Christian, I never lived in this direct opposition to God. Yes, I had received grace, and that was fantastic. I wasn't blatantly immoral, but there was a lot of work that had to be done in my life during the process of journeying with Christ, because it is a journey. And along the journey, there were times where I failed. And when I failed, I absolutely felt it. About 10 or 15 years ago, I even went through this period where I knew that God loved me. I just didn't think that at times he liked me very much. I felt that God was on the hook to save me, that he was contractually obligated to love me. And it was during that time I realized it was a teaching moment. I had a finite understanding 
of God's grace. In my journey, personally, I believe that God has used fatherhood to teach me more about Him, more about His grace. You know, as a father, there are times where my heart will feel like it's about to burst because of the love that I have for my kids. There are even times when my wife and I sit on the couch and we kind of glanced into the other room and watch our children playing together. And uh, we hear their little voices and, and hear their imaginations and their creativity. And we look at each other and we, we just smile. And they have no idea that we are observing them. There are times where our children's behavior isn't acceptable. But what I do notice is that there is this love that I have for them that although there are times of correction and discipline, that love actually remains untouched. It's in those moments I realize that if I, as a father, with an imperfect love, feel all of these things for my children, how must God, with a perfect love, feel about those that he calls sons and daughters. When I think about that, I realize just how extravagant God's grace is. The second thing I want to mention from this story is that experiencing God's extravagant grace results in worship. There are people that I've met over the course of my life who claim to be Christians, but yet the way that they live their lives demonstrate otherwise. I don't mean that from time to time they slip up, mess up here and there, and have these moments of repentance. I mean that there are people who claim to be Christians and yet consistently live in opposition to how the Scripture teaches that Christ followers should live. And on top of that, they don't really seem to care or think about it much. Unfortunately, I think that we do live in a time where people interpret the extravagant grace of God as an excuse to live however they want to live. To use the extravagant grace of God as a license to sin. Because, hey, in the end, God is love, right? It's almost as if there is this bank of inexhaustible grace that people can go and live however they choose. And when the need arises, they can just pull out the grace debit card and say, you know what? I'm all good. And I think that that is a massive misunderstanding. You see, when we talk about God's extravagant grace, this immense grace never leaves us with this attitude of, I have free license to sin. Hey, I've said the sinner's prayer, and now I can just go about living how I desire. In Romans, Paul is dealing with this idea of grace and sin. And in Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, the apostle writes this, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God could show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we were joined with him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. You see, when a person truly experiences the grace of God, it draws them into this life of worship. It doesn't draw them into the realm of perfection. But experiencing grace, true grace, always leaves us with a desire to live 
holy lives. It leads us into a place where we are to worship. But what is worship? In a very simplified answer, we can turn to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. When we go back to the story, we see this moment of worship from this woman who has entered Simon's house. And now Simon is here at a very critical moment. Jesus has displayed His grace over and over again. Jesus has used a parable to lead Simon into a place where he can understand the power of forgiveness. Simon is there watching the outward working of a woman who was forgiven and observing a powerful moment of worship at Jesus' feet as she anoints him. Simon could have risen from his place and joined the woman by her side and worshipped Christ. He could have called out for forgiveness from Jesus. He could have been, it could have been this teachable moment for him. He could have received life and forgiveness and shared in this moment of worship. But instead, the Bible tells us, the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? You see, Jesus pays them no attention. And instead, he focuses on the woman at his feet, saying, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'm not really sure how to interpret the ending of this story. All I know is that it's an abrupt end, and it closes with Jesus focusing on the one who is worshiping him alone. There are no longer any appeals to Simon. There's no more parables to share. There's no further conversation that's recorded. The story simply ends. Perhaps Luke is ending the story in an abrupt manner to make a point. Whether it's intentional or not, there is a picture that we're left with. A sinful woman experiencing the extravagant grace of God that leads to worship. And a Pharisee knowledgeable in the law, familiar with all the traditions of men, one knowing the ins and the outs of Judaism, who is blinded either by his own self-righteousness and simply can't perceive what Jesus is saying, or someone who is completely defiant and will not submit to Christ. The story ends with a worshiper and a resister. As I reflect on the story, I see myself in the place of both Simon and the woman at Jesus' feet. You see, I know that Christ has done something powerful in my life, and that has led me into a place of worship. At the same time, over the years of being a Christian, I've acquired knowledge and understanding and have also forgotten the grace that I have received and continue to receive every moment of every day. Many times I have taken what is costly, my alabaster jar of perfume, so to speak, and have poured it out before Christ. I've laid out everything that was dear to my heart, 
all of the things that I wanted for my life, the, the way that I saw my life going, at times the resources that I had, I've, I've placed it as a gift of worship before the feet of Christ. There have also been times where I've clung tightly to the things that I've possessed, where I've acted as an owner instead of a steward. There have been times where I've honored Christ, where I've given Him absolutely the most honored position in my life, not simply as a guest, but as Lord. And there's also been times where I've neglected Him, where I've overlooked the practices of what it means to truly honor Christ. You see, our lives are filled with opportunities to either worship Christ or to resist Him. I think it's a mistake to believe that once we become Christians, that we are permanently placed in this state of worship and that it doesn't have to be maintained. I think every believer falls short when it comes to this area of worship. That's why when we look at Romans 12 again, Paul says, I plead with you to offer your bodies, to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you, to live holy and acceptable lives. You see, Paul is appealing to Christians. They have to maintain this state of worship, an attitude of worship, an attitude of submitting our lives to Christ, every single area. So my encouragement for you today is to not neglect a life of worshiping the King. To not neglect the greater things, who He is. To not waver in our attention. But it's also important to be reminded that if we have moved into a place where we have neglected to honor Christ, His grace is extravagant. That what we can do is we can repent and turn our attention back to Him to receive forgiveness and grace. And from that place of forgiveness and grace, go back to a place of worship. Do not disconnect yourself from worshiping Jesus Christ. I love Psalm 184 because it presents us with this incredible picture of worship. The psalmist Chapter 84 says, How lovely is your dwelling place. I long, yes, I, I even faint with longing to enter into the courts of the Lord, to go into the place of His presence. With my whole being, my body and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. I believe Psalm 84 is a reflection of this heart of worship. I believe Romans 12 instructs us that worship is beyond just a moment in time, but is a manner of life. And I believe that Luke 7 gives us this incredible story where we can look at a woman who was forgiven and then operated from a place of worship to her master. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the time that we could come together learn from your word, to learn from the stories in the scripture, and to be reminded of the importance of worship in our life. I ask that you would help us to be mindful of the grace that you have extended to us and the grace that is needed to live out each and every moment of our life. We ask that you would stir in us a heart and a desire to worship. 
not just worship moments, but to live lives of worship consistently, day in and day out. God, we thank you for your extravagant grace, and we thank you that your grace and experiencing it will result in an attitude of worship. Thank you again for the time that we've had today. In the name of your Son, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May we come to understand more and more of what it means to live a life of worship. Thanks for checking out our sermons podcast today. For more information on Ottawa Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ottawabaptist.com.